Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Traxler and Carolyn Ford to explore the latest in government cybersecurity news and trending topics. Now, let's get to the point. Hi, everyone. I'm Carolyn Ford. Today, Eric and I are back with Reuters investigative reporter Joseph Men. Joe is one of the longest-serving and most respected mainstream journalists in cybersecurity. He has won three Best in Business awards from the Society of American Business, Editors, and Writers, and has been a finalist for three Gerald Loeb Awards. Today, we pick up where we left off last week, discussing his latest book, Cult of the Dead Cow, How the Original Hacking Supergroup Might Just Save the World which offers keen insight into hacker culture and an abbreviated history of cybersecurity. It tells the story of the oldest, most respected American hacking group of all time. Though until now, it has remained mostly anonymous, its members invented the concept of hacktivism, released the top tool for testing password security, and created what was for years the best technique for controlling computers from afar. With its origins in the earliest days of the internet, the CDC is full of oddball characters, activists, artists, even future politicians. Last week, we ended with the underbelly of the CDC. This week, we get to my favorite part, the superheroes of the CDC, who really might just save the world. I have a question. White hats or black hats, good or bad? How do they see themselves? (laughs) Uh, So, um... I think of them as as almost almost entirely white hats. Um, you know, I think because I, I think um, it depends which one you ask. Uh, they all have individual takes. I think most of them would say say that they're gray hats. Um, but I mean, like like uh, like Dildog uh, Christian Rue says says that he's a gray hat. Um, he's the guy that wrote Bo2K. Um, but he also founded Veracode, which is a billion-dollar company, which has helped you know make God knows how many companies more secure by allowing them to to audit the the the, the code of, of of the stuff they're getting from vendors. Um, you know, so if that's a, I mean, that's a gray hat. That's a pretty high threshold how, for, for. How do you measure, right? Hats. How do you balance the the behaviors? So, I mean, follow I, on I question. think it's obvious that I mean, Veracode hasn't done anything bad. Bo two K, you could argue two two sides of, but you know, that's one of the things that I I love about this group is that they they kept more they leveled up morally or ethically in their behavior from like teenagers mucking around who are basically amoral and the stakes are super low. To like, oh my God, you know, millions of people's, you know, security is at stake, uh, billions, you know, we have to do something, whether it's by in private sector, volunteerism, or working for government. Like they kept finding new ways to try to help people. Well, we and have the power he the and one, capability to do something good. Yeah. Yeah. And is he the one that, that explain? He, he actually has an argument that there is no, it's not black and white. There is no good or bad. It's not binary, but there's, um, just this non-binary code of ethics, basically. Well, so that's, again, one of the interesting things. And one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is that the old school hackers, particularly these guys, but really anybody that goes back far enough to when they were freaking or stealing credit cards or whatever they were doing, had developed their own moral code. Um, you know, and there, you know, there are some that had no problem stealing from AT&T. 
There's some, so I don't have a problem stealing from AT&T, but I'm not going to st- steal from my neighbor. There's some that would say, well, I'm you know, if I steal just a little bit, you know, from, from all these different individuals and then do something good, it's okay. There are many places where I wouldn't go, where probably you wouldn't go. You would disagree with the moral codes they came up with, but they all had to put some work into finding one, to finding where their own comfort place was. And I worry very much that that doesn't happen uh, anymore. As much anymore, because. Yeah. Because as the industry has matured, as it needed to, and there's formal education, you could go to instead of like turning to computers because you had a terrible home life and you were 14 and there was no nobody like you to play with. Um, now you can go to a nice college and, and work for a nice big company and do cybery things without ever having gone through this sort of forge process of would I should I do this or should I should I not do this? What are, what are the ethics? Um, and that means that you can wind up getting sleepwalked into doing something that's actually bad for your customers, for your company, for society. Um, if you if you've never really had to think about a back door, uh, and you know sooner or later, if you're a serious you know successful person in the cybers, somebody's going to ask you to put in a back door. And um, if you haven't been through this kind of process yourself or read about it and paid attention to it, um, you might. Make you might come up with the wrong answer, but Joseph, mm-hmm. couldn't you argue the same thing for a police officer? Right, they're there to protect the banks. They're there to protect society. They know how to do bad things. They see it all the time. They probably, you know, know really well how not to get caught. You could almost make the same argument, couldn't you? Yeah. Um, so, what would you do with those people? You'd want to have them have like not only sort of formal training. On 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 this, but kind of philosophical training and kind of like peer reinforced moral ethical, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for many years there's been you know hackers are sort of embarrassed to talk about their own morality, um, you know, uh, except in just sort of generalities. Uh, information wants to be free, or you know, uh, you know, we're exposing companies that want to hide stuff, or. Um, and I think there really needs to be more detailed discussion of it. One of one of my my favorite talks um, was one Alex Damos gave at the Black Hat or DefCon before Snowden, uh, in which he said, um, I think it was before Snowden. It was either before or right after. It said, talked about like the moral responsibility. Like we, it's like a priesthood. You know, we have this specialized knowledge. People depend on us, and with that comes responsibility. Um, and so, if you see. And he put up like, you know, slides, you know, if you with hypotheticals, um, you discover that, you know, customer information is getting sold out the back door. Do you complain to the CEO? Do you you resign quietly? Do you resign publicly and expose it? You know, all these different things. Um, And, you know, he, he began the talk by saying, I'm a white hat corporate sellout. You know, you know, I'm, I went for the money, you know, uh, but if you're going to do that, here are some ways I found like you, you might have, you know, might conduct yourself as ethically as possible. And then what's later is like he actually quit Yahoo because Yahoo's uh, there was a secret court order and all Yahoo email was getting scanned um, by, by uh, under order of the FISA court. And they hadn't even told the security staff about it. So he actually was true to his word. And he, he quit that gig. So, um I, I, there needs to be more speeches like that, more like this is, you know, hate me or love me. This is why, this is why I did what I did. Um, well, and I like, I, go ahead. I liked um, what you said in the epilogue. You, 
some these were kind of the takeaways for me, but just that one, develop a moral code, stick to it, and you can do great things. Two, small groups with shared values can do even more. And then three, this is the one I want you to unpack a little bit for me. You said shift toward public interest. Can you can you talk about that one? Sure. Um, so forever there's been um, a tradition of I mean, hospitals. Hospitals can't turn away people in the most part simply because they can't pay. They're, they're expected to take care of people mm-hmm. uh, whether they can pay or not. Um, lawyers have a pro bono requirement in many cases, but certainly a, a tradition where they do work for the public interest uh, for, you know, 5% of their time, 10% of their time, whatever it is. Many of these really important professions have that kind of component and tradition and expectation. Um, and there hasn't been that for engineering. Um, and for many years, they kind of got a free pass, I think, from society and from the tech workers themselves because they were seen as, as basically helping everybody. And it's hard to understand now, but a few short years ago, pretty much everybody, left, right, uh, Western, uh, Eastern, um, thought that tech was good. Tech was helping people's lives um, uh, almost exclusively. And so you could work for Facebook or Google or Apple and say, you know, I, I make good money, I'm doing interesting work, and I'm helping the world. And, <clears throat> and therefore, I don't have to do volunteer stuff on the side. Um, and I don't think anybody thinks that's true anymore. Um, you know, nobody universally thinks that, that all tech is great, and the tech progress by itself is, wonder, is enough, is, is enough to move the world forward. Um, people on the left hate hate big tech people on the right help help big tech um there's there's sort of skirmishes everywhere um because of the way it was misused in the the 16 election um and lots of other things you know ai reinforcing uh racism uh the surveillance stuff that is out of control around the world and that we're only even talking about now because um because of the blm movement um so there's been a real recalibration and there's there's self-examination inside the tech industry uh, and pressure from outsiders making them take this stuff more, more seriously. But there could be so much more. Um, there could be a policy, for example, where if Google, where you're allowed to work on like a pet project uh, for 10% of your time or 20%, whatever it is, why not, you know, and they don't, don't allow that for everybody, but why not say also like the 50 best proposals we go not to develop a side project for Google, but to go work at the Red Cross or Amnesty International or, 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 or whatever, uh, the Federal Election Commission, uh, give those people permission to do that uh, for a leave and allow them to come back at their same level and same salary. That's one way you could do it. I um, love that idea. Yeah, and, and, well, and this, this brings me to the fairy tale ending of your book, Joseph, which are these guys, these, these little teenagers, this is what they turned into, right? Just... They, they did exactly what you're talking about. Like, let's talk about Mudge first. I, I love him. I'm, he's now, he's up there on my list. <laughs> Mudge is a hero. Yeah, yeah. So his, so Eric, his motto, if you, if you look him up on Twitter, he says, make a dent in the universe, find something that needs improvement, go there and fix things. If not you, then who? So will you talk about him a little bit for me, Joseph? Sure. So, so Mudge is a fascinating character. Um, <clears throat> so um, 
you know, many, many in the CDC have like had academic um, or, 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 or computer parents. Um, his were, um, you know, his, his dad was a, uh, was a professor um, that specialized on like NASA, like, you know, materials and stuff like that, materials science. Um, uh, so he had sort of like the, the most, you know, the most pointy headed, uh, you know, parentage of, of any of them. A lot of them came from the South, Texas, or other sort of obscure places that weren't sort of without a lot of, commu- you know, easy to find community of like-minded people. He came from Alabama. So uh, extreme, you know, the most uh, extreme in that regard as well. Uh, and many of them are interested in music. Um, uh, Beto, uh, among them, mm-hmm. like his bulletin board was largely about finding um, finding uh, alternative or punk music that you couldn't find in mainstream stores or on mainstream radio yep. stations. We're going to talk more about Beto, too, because I'm voting for him. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mudge was a bona fide uh, musical prodigy. Uh, he went to the Berkeley uh, Berkeley uh, School of Music in um, in Boston, Berkeley with two e, uh, three E's. Um, he was a guitar uh, prodigy, um, and um, so he was like kind of like the most of the CDC in in all these regards. Um, and he was also sort of like this this frontman showman type. Um, well, being just you know completely brilliant. Um, so computers so, and music and NASA in the background. Yeah, and, and DARPA. History. Okay. Wait, wait, yeah, wait that's where we, we get go. to. Oh, we haven't gotten there yet. Let's get it's to DARPA. Yeah. Okay, so uh, fast forward a little bit. He he joins the the loft, um, and then uh, he gets brought in from the loft to CDC as well. So there's four people who are in the loft that were also in CDC, which is really funny because they developed this great sort of like good cop bad cop routine. Where Loft, while still using pseudonyms and being like looked at as suspicious by by many in the industry, you know, we're pretty respectable uh, and, you know, we're seen as neutral. And so those are the guys that could testify to Congress. Whereas CDC is like their hairy cousins from Texas that are going to like, you know, throw raw meat from the stage at DEF CON and make a fool of you. Um, and what's weird is like they most people didn't realize they were the same people. Um, and even when the book came out and like some people on Twitter were like, why are you writing about CDC, man? Loft could totally kick their ass. And I'm like, they're the <laughs> same guys. <laughs> um, but anyway, so Loft, um, Loft begets, um, uh, you know, Loft begets, uh, at stake, um, which is this pioneering security boutique where they go inside Microsoft, these other big companies that they use to tweak and actually tell them how to do things better. Um, at stake eventually gets bought by Symantec, um, and and they sort of scatter uh, like the Fellowship of the Ring, um, and uh, Mudge goes to does does intelligence contracting work, um, and I think actually this is an interesting point. So there's a very rough transition from when people tried to make a living out of this stuff, when hackers first tried to make a living hacking, um, and uh, the most obvious thing to do is to try and catch other hackers. But that means you're burning – you can easily wind up burning your old friends. Right. You're rolling um, over on your own people. Right. So there are a number of people that were just a couple years ahead of, of the early CDC crowd who did that. Um, and it didn't work. You know, They got busted for working with the FBI you – know, quote, busted, unquote, for working with the FBI or for like having, having known hackers on staff and, and whatever. And those companies didn't go anywhere. Mudge managed to walk the line – 
by figuring he would not name names and working with the cops, but he would talk to the intelligence community, at least to tell them what was what was doable and what wasn't, because he was basically rooting for our, our country versus other countries, and they should at least be making informed decisions about what they should do. So he was doing intelligence contracting way back um, when he was at the loft, um, and then later he winds up running DARPA's cybersecurity program about 10 years ago uh, for a three-year stint, which is normally what DARPA does. Uh, and during that time, he worked on Stuxnet-like things that he can't talk about. Um, but they're, they're, the thing that he did do that is known um, in public is that he created something called the Cyber Fast Track. And this was great because DARPA, who the folks that brought you the internet in the first place, um, normally gives great pots of money to establish companies or universities to come up with, you know, and I just want to say they have the greatest slogan in the history of the federal government, which is their mission is the creation and suppression of strategic surprise, right? <laughs> so these are the guys that come up with, uh, in addition to the internet, which is a defensive thing, um, uh, you know, future wep- futuristic weapons, like really cool defense and offense. Yeah, like hypersonic and so missiles and all kinds of good stuff, lasers, right. you name it. Right, and a lot of stuff we don't know about yet. Um, so he's running their cyber program, but he doesn't, he knows that a lot of the best stuff in cyber is done by like, you know, two people in a garage or one person or a small group. And there's no way they can even get any federal contract, let alone something from like a defensive place like DARPA. So he convinces DARPA to do away with all the paperwork and do these small grants like 10K, 20K, 50K to one or two people to do something like to just try out an idea and he like promises a turnaround like within 30 days or something. And then they get to keep their IP. And so this is how the, the Jeep hack, you, you remember the Jeep hack, Eric, back in, I don't know, 2011 or something where Miller hacked a Jeep. Charlie Miller. Yeah. Charlie yeah. Miller uh, was one of the recipients um, of one of the, the cyber fast track ads. So are like, a lot of the of the best hackers, like the stars of, of DEFCON and Black Hat, those guys got money from Mudge's so DARPA. Is that program still in place today? Uh, not in it, in that form. I think I think there was sort of permanent progress, and you can get smaller amounts of money. But Cyber Fast Track itself, sadly, is gone uh, when uh, Mudge rotated out. Mudge went on to do mm. special projects at Google, and he also created something called the. Um, Oh, I'm going to I'm going to bungle the name, but it's like a consumer reports, um, a rating system for uh, the security of code, mm-hmm. uh, which is really cool. Um, uh, but you mentioned, sorry, to just go back to the to the small programs. Um, I thought you mentioned that it became a blueprint for the DOD. So it was spread elsewhere within the federal government, but I think DARPA itself does not have that exact thing anymore. Yeah, there are different components in the intelligence community, DIU and the government, the uh, defense uh, experimental unit. Um, There are different programs out there where they're definitely dropping small grants or awards to organizations they wouldn't normally work with. That's yeah. right. Um, so you he, know, he's they the have one different that levels of success. Yeah. Yes. So so he managed to like hack the government in a good way. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So as, as we're wrapping up here, I, I have one question. I just have to get out. How, how did they? How and why did they decide? Maybe it's a two part question. I'll cheat. How and why did they decide to let you in? Yeah. Sure. Like, that's, why that's the a good publicity? Question. 
Well, um, I think there are a number of reasons. Um, so I think first of all, um, you know, they'd read my work. I'm an established guy. Um, so I long track record. A, yeah. So I'd written a book on Napster and there's actually overlap between some of the people in Napster and some of the people around CDC. Uh, you know, Sean Fanning was a legit budding young hacker and he was in hacking groups with, um, with some of these folks. Uh, so they, they had read my Napster book. They talked to the people that I'd interviewed who felt that they were treated fairly and that I'd gotten it right or whatever. Uh, and then the next book was Fatal System Error was like the first one to show that there's like organized Russian cybercrime with protection by the Russian government um, is this terrible, terrible force wreaking havoc upon uh, the West. Um, so, you know, they, I think they appreciated my, my reporting as one. Um, I, I don't think you can understate the importance of the uh, statute of limitations uh, as well. So, so they were free uh, and clear. You can tell your story without any repercussions. Let me answer Eric's question more fully. So okay. this, is a, this is a long process. And I, um, I, I, I talked to a few of them and I said, look, I'm interested in doing a book. And it's going to be generally positive because, you know, I had already written a book that said we're all screwed, uh, uh, Fatal System Error. And – you know, that's true. It's still true. But um, there is good stuff to be done. I don't want people to give up. And I want I want this message to be passed on to younger people so they know, you know, so I can I, I explained how I worked. I was transparent about my process, which is something I always do. Um, and it, it, it winds up sort of being more of a, like a joint venture. You know, we, we have overlapping interest this much, and that's what we're going to focus on. And I told them I wasn't going to hide any crimes or misbehavior, that I was going to talk about Jacob Applebaum. Um, but the overall message is supposed to be inspiring. And they, they gradually came more and more on board until the point where they all let me use their names, which I had, did not expect at all uh, going in. Yeah, and Psychedelic Warlord, I mean, it was kept really, really secret until yeah. you published this book. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, I had to scoop myself. Um, it was in the book, uh, and it was like a fun part of the book. And, I, you know, I, I held, like, kept the last page to see whether or not he, he won this Senate race. And then he lost that. I'm like, okay, that's the end of the book. Turned it in. Uh, ready to go publish, uh, you know, as we work through the, the physical process and the copy editing and all that. Um, and, then, and then, wait a minute, he's like traveling around ra random states talking to people and blogging about it. He's not actually done, is he? And so I saw it was coming and I, I knew I couldn't. So there, I thought he was going to run for president and mm -hmm. I couldn't, I couldn't know. I, I had an embargo with him because none, no, nobody would talk to me about Beto if it was going to screw his chances running for Senate. And I, you know, and I didn't really care about the outcome of a given Senate race. I wanted to tell the larger story of, of like hacking and how it's more public interesty. And, and now people who started out as hackers are trying to do, have broader impact on society. So I made a deal with him that I would not reveal that Beto O'Rourke had been in the cult of the dead cow until after his Senate election. Um, and so then afterwards I could have done it any time and I was saving it for the book because it was a cool scoop for the book. But then I'm like, oh my God, he's going to run for president. I can't sit on it. I can't have like not only the first ever hacker run for president, not only a hacker who is in the most in, early member of the most influential hacking group of all time in the United States, but also the guy that gender integrated the most influential U.S. hacking group of all time. I can't sit on that. So I prepared a story and we, we let the first 
day's worth of coverage so that everybody knew about who Beto O'Rourke, that he was in the race, that he was coming in like pretty high up, like second to Biden or third or whatever he was. Yeah. Um, uh, and then and then we dropped, you know, uh, like a 3000 word story on Reuters, which is my day job about him in, 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 in the CDC and like said that this is from the upcoming book. Yeah. And that, that story, by the way, was the most read story in the history of Reuters.com. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, great, great ending to the book. It did leave me with a lot of hope. And, and I really loved this idea that you end the book with that serious, seriously applied thinking should be treated as a form of critical infrastructure. Right. Cause we're in a mess right now. Right. You know, yeah. like people believe that they're worth, uh, that the world is flat. People don't see why masks will help protect you from COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all this just terrible stupidity out there that's being promoted for money or for political reasons, um, or just generally due to the failure of our education system. And to me, really good hackers, you know, any hacker, is any good is a critical thinker because you're looking at a system the way it didn't want to be looked at and you're trying to find flaws with it. And that's something to be prized and encouraged. Um, that's how progress happens. And so I wanted to, you know, if I can't change the American educational system or the way social media spreads crap, um, you know, I can at least hold up these people as paragons of critical thinking, some kind of moral cause um, and, you know, adaptability to new, new challenges and new platforms. Yeah. Well, it's definitely the way the book left me. So thank you very much, Joseph, for spending some time with us. And um, thanks to our listeners to, for being part of To The Point Cybersecurity. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, be kind, wear a mask, run your patches. Can we say that? Sure, we can say that. It's just common sense. Right? Yeah, it is. That's right. It is. <laughs> everybody should wear a mask. Take care, everybody. Thanks, guys. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Google Play Store 